There were many moments uh, in the past few days where I felt like if Mahabharata is alive within me. I felt like if I was either transported there or Mahabharata was transported here. Am I hallucinating? It must be the decor. <laughs> Other than the decor. You see real-time fighting they were doing. So all those things, the idea is to transport you there. The idea of telling a story, the idea of listening to a story is so that you can walk through the story. If that doesn't happen, you are sitting aloof from the story. Sitting aloof from the story, you may analyze the story, you may dissect the story, you will not experience it. 
with analysis, you may write a paper on it, but you will… your life will not become enriched by it. If your life has to be enriched, you have to go through what people have gone through. We cannot in your life, no matter what you do, what kind of trouble you get into, you will still not go through what these people are going through in their lives, isn't it? It's too much drama, yes or no? Whatever kind of blunders you may do, still you cannot go through that kind of drama. So don't miss the drama, go through it, free of cost. Without injury, we can go through a battle, what more? Yes? Without shame, we can go through all the shame. Without raging with hatred and somebody not doing anything to us, we can go through all that because there are two ways to grow. One, by sheer transcendence that you stand above everything, untouched by the ways of life. Then you should have become a monk. This is a… a direct path that you're not interested in what happened in Mahabharata. You just sit here, roll your eyeballs up, you're somewhere else. Mahabharata means nothing to you, if you want to take the truth. But you have not taken the truth, you've gotten into life. Now you better go through Mahabharata. Otherwise, you will create those situations. You go through it and you grow out of it. Otherwise, you may think these are all horrible situations. But please understand, every one of these emotions which led them to grand disasters exist within you and they are leading you to minor disasters because you're a minor human being compared to them. If you were a, a very big one, you would have gotten into big trouble. Because you are small, you get into small trouble, but small trouble does not create any less misery than big troubles. Yes or no? Small troubles, do they create less misery than big troubles? Small troubles create as much misery as big troubles. Yes or no? Yes, always yes, life is like that. So, this is an opportunity to go through the situation, to live through the situation and grow out of it. Not to sit aloof and analyze, okay, is this guy good guy, is that guy bad guy? No, 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 all these people exist within you. All these emotions exist within you. All these strengths exist within you. All these weaknesses exist within you. Have you empowered your strength or your weaknesses is the question of your life, isn't it? Which one have you empowered within yourself? Accordingly, you are experiencing. So Mahabharat is not… it's not for entertainment we created all this. We thought you will grow out of many things in the process of living through what other people live through. Because if you have to live through it, it would be life-wise too expensive. Even to simulate a live-through, it's pretty expensive. If you have to live through it in life, it would be too expensive, isn't it? Not just in terms of money, in terms of life it would be too expensive. So, a budget Mahabharata, go through it well.
Um, I've always been intrigued by the Bhagavad Gita, but never been able to comprehend much of it. I was wondering if you could talk about the essence of the Gita. You are lucky, you read it and you couldn't comprehend. I never got around to read it. <laughs> we've been taught, I mean, we've been listening to stories of Ramayana and Mahabharata, you know, from our parents, grandparents, but it, when it comes to the Gita, it's a sacred text just kept there. So, I was wondering if you could talk about the essence of the Gita. So, this is always the thing. People are always interested in the teaching, not in the example of the teacher. People are interested in the Gita, not in the way Krishna lived. The way he lived is the teaching. For those who did not get it, for them he had to verbalize. So if you get the spirit behind what he is doing, if you get the wisdom behind what he is doing, if you understand the intelligence behind what he is doing, the context of what he is doing, you know the Gita. You know, I was speaking to somebody in the public domain and uh, I had to admit that I have not read the Gita. I said, now we are doing this Mahabharat program, that was about four months ago. I said, we are doing this Mahabharat program, now I am compelled to read it. But I still passed Mahabharat program without reading it, that's why I skipped. So, there is no better insight into the teaching of anybody than the way he lives. If he lives one way and teaches another way, he's a fake teacher, isn't it? Just look at Krishna's life, don't believe his words, who knows whether it's his words, somebody added up, we don't know. Look at his life carefully, unprejudiced, unjudgmental, just look at the life in the context of his existence, you will definitely know the Gita. If you want to know what Isha is about, don't just listen to the audio cassettes or uh, video CDs. You just look at the way everything is being done, that is the teaching. If you don't get it, you want another teaching that you can take away with you. No, no, life's wisdom does not come that way. That whenever you want in an emergency, you can open, open a book and there will be answer. Life's wisdom will not come that way to you. And such a wisdom will not stand good to see you through this life and beyond. You need to internalize it, knowing it as life, not knowing it as words written in a book. Somehow, I have great regard and respect for whatever he might have said, but somehow I never got around to read it. It's not that I'm allergic to it, I never got around to read it. If I had time, I'll read the newspaper, because with the newspaper, I know how people are operating today in the world. <laughs> if I have little more time, I'll open up a ma news magazine because by looking at what everybody is saying and doing, you know the consciousness of the world. Anyway, I don't believe anything that anybody says. I look at them the way they are. <laughs> so, I want you to look at Krishna the way he is. Don't listen to his words. The same goes for everything. 
in Tamil Nadu in second houses. They said inauspicious to keep the dais at home or even to keep the picture of the war where Krishna and Arjuna is there is inauspicious or they don't even read Mahabharata at home. Uh, why is it uh, so the culture in Tamil Nadu is like that, probably in southern India, why is it? Not uh, everywhere in southern India, it's only in Tamil Nadu, only in certain parts of Tamil Nadu essentially, particularly in the south. Huh? Even in the north? Really? No, huh? In everybody's house, Krishna and Arjuna in the battlefield, it's not so in Karnataka, Andhra Pradesh and all, we do keep it. I didn't read it, but we do keep it. <laughs> uh, is this so in the north? Yes. Oh. Why is that? Somebody very wise in your house must have said that, because they read it and they don't want you to read it. Because you may understand them <laughs> by reading the Mahabharata. <laughs> really, if you read Mahabharata, you understand everybody who's around you. <laughs> huh? If you don't have it in the house, where do you read it? In a public library? The complete epic is maybe the houses were too small for that. Whatever, I don't know. Anyway, in south, there is a certain aspect. Not keeping the dice is uh, because if you have the dice, you will want to roll it, of course. And of course, you would like to believe that you are an expert, just like Yudhishthira did. And even today, when play… people play dice and now cards have come, most people don't play these games without money being involved. Yes? They… there is a stake. They put something on the stake. The nature of gambling is such, you always believe if you lose that the next one you're going to make it. That's what they're trying to depict with Yudhishthira. He thinks, okay, one more risk if I take it, I'll get back everything. This is the nature of gambling. Otherwise, nobody would gamble. If they lost once, they would come home. It's not like that. They think, okay, last time I lost, but I'm going to make it this time. A friend of mine, was working in the race course in Mysore at one time. And many times I went there to either pick him up or drop him and uh, I never understood what is the thing about horses running and these guys going and sitting every weekend and watching horses running, horses running, horses running on a track. But you should see the passion, oh my god. And this time around, about a month ago, in Mysore city, the golf course and the race course are together. We were golfing and I heard a roar. Oh, they screamed. I, s I thought, what happened? They said, oh, races. I said, wow, races are there, let's watch it. They said, no, not here, they're just watching the television and they're betting and they're screaming. Races are happening somewhere, I don't know where, Bangalore or I don't know, Mumbai or wherever. These guys are sitting in Mysore and a big crowd, about something like twelve hundred, thirteen hundred people sitting there and watching a television and they're betting on it. 
It's such a big thing and you must see the other kinds of betting. The matka, the nothing, just a numbers, a New York cotton prizes in India, people bet millions and millions of dollars across India. Cricket matches in India goes into like even hundred million dollars or more per match. So, that is the nature of gamble. If you keep this at home, you will want to roll it. Or if you play with your family, you could end up with a big fight, that is the nature of the game. So, and another thing is, once you get into it, I, I have known friends when I was… I couldn't believe it how they would do this. I have known friends who would sit, they would hire a room, they would rent a room in a hotel, six, eight, ten of them will sit in this hotel room and non-stop it is, you understand? Two days, three days, non-stop. If they feel sleepy, they'll go rest right there and come back. Food is served there, they, the game won't stop. Three days, four days, till everything is emptied, everything they have is lost, they won't stop because that is the nature of the gambling. So, for this reason and for what happened to Yudhishthira, he brought himself all this distress upon himself and his family because of gambling. To control the gambling instinct, they said no dice because dice rolling was the only form of gambling at that time. So they said that. Now there are many other forms of doing it, that's different. People are doing it on the internet, so <laughs> And another thing about South India, South-South is <laughs> there is a history behind this. The first Aryan invasions happened somewhere between 8,500 to 9,000 years ago. That is when people started coming from across Himalayas to Indian subcontinent. When they came here, this was paradise for them because climate is good, no extremities, rich land, great rivers, no snow, no excess of desert or snow or this, that, nothing. Everything is like this, temperature variation is within eight to fifteen degrees maximum. Everything comfortable, land is rich, water, lot of wildlife. So when they came and saw this place, it was the place and above all, gold. Gold was like everything. Gold was like simply everywhere. You will see not that long ago, even in recent times, something like fifteen hundred years ago, travelers who came from outside report, gold and diamonds were sold gold nuggets and diamonds were sold on the street side without any security, without anything which could not be done anywhere else in the world because it was so abundant. That is what fired all the European expeditions, you know. All the Columbuses, Vasco de Gamas took off because they heard about the gold and they tasted the spice. With the tongue hanging off, they wanted to find India, they wanted to find India because the spice, has it gotten you? Those who come from outside the country in the last four days, has the spice gotten you? Because you need to understand this, the European culture had never tasted anything spicy in their life. They just ate everything salted, that's all. No spice at all. They've never seen it, they've never known it. First time when you taste spice, life explodes into a different dimension of experience.
and the Western Ghats were known as the Spice Mountains because spice just grew wild, even today. It just grew wild, not one, hundred different varieties of spice. So spice and gold, gold spice, you heard that. So the gold was one thing and another thing was these were settled communities. They had built cities at that time. Between India-Pakistan border, particularly in the area of Gujarat, there have been excavations which are twelve, thirteen hundred years old, twelve, thirteen thousand years old and they have cities. Unfortunately, it is in a disputed area where constantly these two nations have been fighting not much excavation has happened, very little has happened. Some historians have written fantastic, uh, you know, kind of interpretations, they've not seen everything. The iconographic proof, which is very much uh, established in the British uh, Natural History Museum, says there were properly manufactured coins with the image of Shiva, which are twelve thousand years old, in a yogic posture, sitting like this, Rudra, sitting in a yogic posture with a bull standing next to him, twelve thousand year old coins are present even today. Because they had established cities, how this happened is just this. These are Aryans who came from outside. They live in harsh lands, so they're nomadic in nature, they move. Because of this for them, fire became their guiding post and when you're a nomad, you always look up you have no interest in the earth. They always looked up for their hopes, for their fears, for their anxieties, for their future, for guidance, everything they looked up. You need to understand this, all the world religions have happened because of this. Because they were nomadic, they looked up at the stars. Because they have to travel, they understood the stars more and more because it was vital to know the stars to travel. Because these people here in the indigenous people of India looked at the earth, because of that, thousands of years ago they developed agriculture. They never bothered to look up. They did not know any about… anything about navigation. They did not know how to travel the seas, but they knew how to get gold out of the land, how to get food out of the land, how to make the land rich and live there. So naturally, they lived in one place. Once they lived in one place, arts, culture, music, mathematics, all kinds of things developed, building crafts, all these things developed and they built cities. When these people did not know what is a city, what is a dwelling, when they lived in tents or slept in open and they were nomadic, when they came and saw this, and because they were always on the move, they were rough men. Because these people had settled down, they kind of softened up. So when they came, they were a easy take. And when the Aryans came, they did not know what to call them because their language was completely different. Even today, Tamil language has no basis in the Sanskrit. Every… almost every other language from here across to Europe, everything has basis in Sanskrit language. But Tamil is one language which has no Sanskrit base because it was an indigenous process. And gradually as the Aryan hordes came from the north, initially just as invaders, like bandits, later on as settlers, 
later on as conquerors, gradually step by step, in the next two to three thousand years, this happened. When this happened, gradually they pushed these people down, pushed these people down. Even in Mahabharata, there are many incidents where how they want to, you know, completely take off the Rakshasa culture from there. They call them the Rakshasas. Rakshasa was not a negative word at that time, it's only later in connotation it became negative. They pushed them south and pushed them south. You will see this if you just look at the people. It'll be not nice, but if you ask people from the base south of Tamil Nadu, somebody from Karnataka, somebody from Andhra Pradesh, somebody from Madhya Pradesh, somebody from Maharashtra, somebody further up, further up, further up, you will see the color of the skin, the physical stature, how it changes. Because this is how people were, the two cultures met, intermingled and this became one way, the really no up north looked different and even today it looks different. So because of this, whatever came from the Aryan culture, a small group of diehards resisted that. Even today they're resisting, okay? Even today, all the th political parties in Tamil Nadu are… have to have the ethics that it's Dravid, Dravidian. Always they're Dravidian parties, otherwise there's no way they can come to political power because still that feeling and that emotion is still strong in people. And they know… they may not know the history, but they know somewhere some exploitation happened to them. So in South India, in Tamil Nadu, they don't celebrate Ram Leela, they do Ravan Leela. And it's common for people to take the name Ravan, Ravanan, just now he's been in news, is a common name in Tamil Nadu. It's unimaginable in the north that anybody taking the name of Ravan, isn't it? Here Ravan is seen as a great king a great devotee of Shiva, an injustice happened to him, his city was burned down in an unfair manner, that's how it is seen. So, because of this, there is a resistance of cultural imposition in the form of Ramayana, Mahabharata, and if you look at it, there is a streak of prejudice running through Ramayana and Mahabharata, they're dismissing off the indigenous people as Rakshasas, and they're saying killing them is not even a crime, you can burn them down. See, the way Kunti burned down that mother and five sons, there is not even a thought about it because they are Nishada people. That means they are not Aryans. A non-Aryan person, if you burn him, it means nothing. I'm saying it has been so in many parts of the world, isn't it? If you killed a black man in uh, America, uh, let us say a hundred years ago, it was not a crime, it was just a social event, you know. So it was so here also, but a few thousand years ago. So this was there, so because of this feeling, still there is a small little bit of resistance going on about that. But it is so far away, cultures have mixed and you can't separate who is who anymore. It's… it's too long a period to resist. You can keep Mahabharat, sense will come into you. If it doesn't come into you, if your husband or wife reads it, sense will come into them, that could help too. Yes? See, keeping people ignorant is not a solution. If people who live with you know all aspects of life and still they choose to live with you, 
it's easier to live with them, I'm telling you. People are living with you because of they have some silly ideas about you, which you can never fulfill. <laughs> yes, they have some silly ideas about you, it is impossible to fulfill those expectations, you will be in constant trouble. Trouble does not mean something wrong has to happen, nothing right happened in your life, that is the worst trouble. Nothing happened, right or wrong, nothing happened. You avoided life, that is the worst thing that you can happen to a human being. Let something happen, that's Mahabharat. You can keep the dice, don't roll it, okay? And don't take anything or anybody on it. It's okay to keep the dice now because you have found various other ways to gamble, this is not going to tempt you into go and stake your house or something else. You must keep gambling out of your house, not the dice. Uh, being from the West and not being so familiar with Mahabharat, my question is, um, did Mahabharat really happen or is it just a story? The ancient books that you find in this country have been categorized as three different categories. The Vedas, the Puranas and Itihas. Vedas are about abstract ideas. Puranas are stories of beings who are not human, about otherworldly people. Shiva's story is called Shiva Purana, not Shiva Itihas. This is very significant. We clearly say Shiva Purana, but we do not say Krishna Purana, no, Krishna Avatara, that means it happened. I've already gone through this, but anyway. So when we tell a story, In the West, if you talk about history, you're talking about somebody, let's say two thousand years ago, the nature of the Western intellect is to analyze this, try to get the facts of his life as much as possible and present it as facts and analysis. Five thousand years ago, whether somebody lived or does not… did not live, does not make any difference in your life, isn't it? Whether Jesus existed or not, does not make any difference in your life. Whether that dimension or that quality we refer to as Jesus exists in your life or not, is what makes the difference, isn't it? So, when history is written in this country, it is written in such a way that it will always be relevant for people. The story or the events did happen, but it is said in such a way that it is not simply a factual analysis, but a live process where even after thousand years, if human beings read the story, it still means something to them because it is written in that context. Because his story is not important for me, my story is important for me in this life. 
and I want to enrich my story with his story. I don't want to burden myself with his story. History is a burden, isn't it? See, there are many historical facts in Europe. You come from Europe or America? Huh? America. So, there are many historical facts in America and in Europe which you do everything possible to hide in your history books. Yes or no? It comes out in small pieces in Hollywood movies, but the history books in America and in Europe do everything possible to hide because this is the ugliness of humanity. It is best it is hidden in many ways, but at the same time people who suffered want to keep it up because it is said as simply facts and analysis. If the same thing was said in the fashion in which Mahabharata is said, everybody should know the, know the story so that we don't repeat those mistakes once again. So instead of carrying history as a burden on your head, you carry history as a solution in your life. That is Mahabharata. We are carrying this five thousand year, year history like a solution to our lives. What says the beginning of Mahabharata is, what is in this book could be everywhere, but what is not in this book is nowhere. Everything that a human being can go through is here in some form. It's for you to glean it out of the story, for you to grow out of the story. If you go through the story like a life process, you will become like Yudhishthira in the end, clean of all these things. If you think it is somebody else's story, sit here and analyze, is Arjuna a good guy or a bad guy, is Duryodhana a good guy or a bad guy? Unfortunately, this is so badly infected human mind today, you cannot sit here not judging anybody, even if the man died long ago and liberated you from him. He died five thousand years ago, but you have to pass your judgment on him. This is your arrogance, this will be your downfall. That is what the last part of the story is saying. Somebody is saying, oh, I saved all these people. No, 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 not you. It is a consequence of so many things. So don't sit here, waste your life trying to analyze people who lived here five thousand years ago. It's just waste of time and life. We want to see how his story can enhance my story. This is Mahabharata. It is the way it is rendered which is different. Is it historically did happen? Yes, it did happen. There are places, there are events, there are buildings still. There are still certain buildings. We're still fighting over it. <laughs> yes, before this story of Krishna being born, when Rama was there, the building, we are still fighting on that. Recently the court parts… The, the high court of a certain state passed an order saying, yes, it was there and Rama did… Rama was born here. And there are books in certain families which maintain lineages and they say, I, I happened to meet somebody in Rajasthan. So they opened this one parchment book and they're showing, see here it is written, we are the three hundred and thirty-third generation in the Suryavamshis. 
So Rama was some nine thousand years ago, according to our book, we are here living as Surya Vamshis even today. We belong to his lineage, we maintain the blood relationship. So the story definitely happened, but the way it is rendered, it's rendered in such a brilliant way so that it will always be relevant. It will not become ancient history and we are not interested in reading. It will always be relevant. You will see in the next probably twenty, thirty years, Mahabharat will become very popular across the world. You watch it, I'm telling you this. You watch this and see, it will happen. And I will make sure it becomes very popular in Tamil Nadu because we are planning a truck-based drama company. Two trucks, if they park together, it'll become stage. If it opens up, it'll have audio, lighting, works. So another fifteen people travel in another van and a couple of jeeps to propagate. They will go and deliver Mahabharat just about anywhere. We want to do this, we're just looking for sponsorships once the sponsorships come. Because the idea is not to tell somebody else's story. Story is one thing that a human being naturally wants to pay attention to. If you… if you give them a teaching, nobody wants to listen. You tell them a story, everybody wants to listen. And modern educational research clearly says if only science and social sciences and physical sciences and everything were rendered as stories or plays, people would learn science, would learn education, would go through the process of education without suppressing their intelligence. Right now, some of the research says if you go through from kindergarten for twenty years of formal education, seventy percent of your intelligence is irrevocably destroyed. That could be avoided if education was rendered as a story. You do one thing, you go into your schoolhouse and tell them A plus B equals C, do, do, do. Children will claw crawl under the table and disappear. The earth was soft, they will dig a tunnel and go away. That is why they fix concrete floors <laughs> But you tell them a story, they will burrow themselves from their homes and come and pop up and sit here. Yes or no? So we want to tell the story in a big way in Tamil Nadu. If the sponsorships come, it will happen sometime in the year. And somebody was asking me, why not Maharashtra, why not something else? Yes, it's possible everywhere. It just takes… you need to understand, there are people who have the talent, but that talent is dwindling so quickly because when kings lived, they sponsored talent. Now there is nobody to sponsor talent, so everybody is becoming software engineer. Make a living, make a living, make a living. After making a living, you don't know why the hell you're living. So it's very important, as the world gets more stabilized, which it is, it's more stable than ever before, as physical well-being comes to people, it is very important that a human being explores his consciousness in whichever way possible. Not everybody is going to sit like this while eyeballs rolled up, but people's eyeballs will roll up when you tell them a story. 
So, we want to make Mahabharata really popular, not for… because it's the history of this country, because it's your story. It is everybody's story. It is not somebody's story, it's our story. Every living human being, it is the same story, isn't it? So, it, did it happen historically? Definitely it did. So today our mission is to establish a higher level of consciousness. But in the Mahabharata it was to establish uh, Dharma. Why did you know why the difference? The mission that Krishna consciously takes on is, he wants to marry the spiritual process with the political system of the day. This is something probably most people wouldn't have heard of, the beautiful rendition of the dance today about Krishna. The moment you talk about Krishna, you talk about his playfulness, his love, his mischief and beautiful things like this, romantic things like this. But that was only the first sixteen years of his life. Not that after that he was not playful, not that he was not beautiful, loving, whatever, he was all those things. But he went at the purpose of his life with zeal and without a moment's break and rest. One thing that most people would not have heard of is, Krishna established over one thousand ashrams across the northern plains of India in every kingdom. One thousand ashrams. We haven't done that much, just one and one more, okay? He's never known for this, unfortunately, because people think the spiritual teaching is just in the Gita, when he came to the battlefield, the song of wisdom that he spoke is not all spiritual. It is politico-spiritual, if there is such a term. <laughs> he is talking more about Kshatriya Dharma, about how being a warrior he cannot go back on the hopes that people have put in him. So, he established dharma in the way he could and in many ways his effort to marry the spiritual process with the political system did not work. Even today, the only way spiritual process and spirituality as a culture and as a possibility can touch every human being only if the… if the political administrations of many nations turn spiritual, only then. Otherwise, spirituality will always remain a fringe. If the presidents and the prime ministers and the ministers and the members of the parliament and these kind of people all turn spiritual, can you imagine? But it's possible because every five years we can replace them, <laughs> you know? 
Every five years we can change the men, so it's possible. Making the king spiritual was a much bigger challenge than making the democratic administration spiritual. Because who knows, one of you could get elected. Do I see a president? <laughs> because to make the king spiritual was a much more difficult thing because if Duryodhana is ruling for the next forty years or fifty years, you give up your mission to understand. It doesn't matter who is ruling today, you can still continue your mission because 2014 in India. So everything could change wherever, whichever country, I'm just saying for example. At the next election, you could have a sage sitting there, the possibility is there. Only thing is, you have to create enough sages in the world that they may get elected. A sage who is willing enough to get elected. <laughs> sage who has necessary guile to get elected. Not a sage who will sit in a mountain cave. A sage who can remain a sage even in a marketplace. That kind of a sage. And he can get elected. So, we cannot give up the mission. Namaste, Sadhguru. Are there any other countries with a rich history written like India about the past? Those countries which had a long and rich history, those cultures, whether you take the Norse or the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, the Incars, the Mayans, most of these cultures have gotten grounded. They are not living cultures anymore. They are only archival cultures. So if you look at it in that context, the only ancient culture which is still a living culture is India alone. So it's very important that we preserve this, otherwise we will also become archival. All the other great cultures are today only there in the archive. Oh, they live only in the museum, they are not living cultures anymore. This is the only one. We must preserve, preserve the multi-dimensional nature of this culture. It's very, very important. I happen to be <laughs> in a peace conference. This peace conference, uh, all kinds of people, top spiritual leaders, very heavily people who are bent with awards, you know, people… nobody gets an award just like that, that's very rare. All of this lobby for awards, very rarely some extraordinary talent gets award simply like that. Somebody calls him and gives him an award, that is just a few people. Rest of the f them lobby for it and every year they will get an award, award, award and they're heavy with awards. All those medals, difficult to carry. So, I'm saying an assembly 
of hugely respected people in the country and in the world, an assembly of people like that. And we're talking about world peace. This is conducted in an ashram where the leader of that ashram is over ninety, ninety-two years of age at that time. And it was his dream to conduct a world peace summit. So when they came and told me he's ninety-two and it's been his dream and this is the event happening, you must come, I went. At one time I believed these peace conferences would do something and I went to many. No more, I'm not going to any of the peace conferences. I'm going to all economic conferences because I see they could do something. He had his disciples and devotees. They said, for his next birthday, we will give world peace as gift. I thought, okay. In the next one year, they're going to offer a peaceful world to him as a gift. I appreciate their emotion. As devotees, as disciples, they feel they want to give it. I appreciate their emotion. I'm not against that. But I don't appreciate their simple, you know, simpleton way of approaching this. But I didn't say anything. Devotees say something like that, it's okay. A devotee is allowed a margin because He's not talking about the world, he's talking about himself, how he feels. It's okay, he feels that way. Lovers and devotees must be allowed a certain amount of margin. Isn't it so? Otherwise there'll be no love or no devotion. So I'm willing to allow all the margin that you want. But when responsible people who are supposed to be working for that, they stand up and say ridiculous things, then it becomes difficult. So people stand up and say, these are… I don't want to name them, these are huge with millions and millions of people behind them, okay? So, the simple logic is just this. There is no world peace because we are all worshipping different gods. If all of us worship one God, world will become peaceful. All of them talking in this, I, I'm just thinking, am I missing something? You know, am I really missing something? In any situation, if I step into, if something is wrong, first thing I do is, have I lost it? You know, am I making something wrong? First I clear this and once I have cleared this, there is no stopping me. <laughs> so then my turn to speak came and uh, I said, forget about one God. People who are born to the same parents within the family, more battles are going on than India and Pakistan. India, Pakistan, we have fought only three battles in sixty-four years, it's… it's a phenomenal record. 
record of amity and peace, I'm saying. <laughs> Only three battles in sixty-four years. In sixty-four years, between brothers and sisters and husbands and wives, how many battles happen? In sixty-four years of life, they don't shoot, of course. But uglier things happen than shooting, no? So just because they're born to the same parents, is there going to be peace? Just because all of you worship same God, is there going to be peace? People will find some other reason to fight. And people who are professing one God, they're the people who are fighting like hell. I said, the idea of having a million gods is, we have thirty-three million gods and goddesses in this country. And that happened when our population was thirty-three million. After that, because people from outside came and started making fun of all your gods, oh, you're worshipping cows, you're worshipping trees, you're worshipping snakes, you don't know what you're doing, and here there was nobody to tell them why it is so, people got little embarrassed about it and stopped creating gods. See, I created two, have you created any? <laughs> if every one of you had your own god, at least you couldn't fight for him. If hundred people gather behind one god, then they are a fighting force. If each individual… this is the culture, here you are supposed to have a Ishta Devata, a god of your choice. If you don't like any of the existing forms, you can create one. This will definitely ensure that you're peaceful. Because you got your god, he's got his god, what are you going to fight with? If this party belongs to one god, this party belongs to one, one god, how long will you avoid fighting? One day they will fight, isn't it? You can keep them away, you can manage them, you can police them, someday it will burst out. You can't help it. Either you must be a fake. If you don't fight, you're a fake. You believe this is God and if they're saying that is God, how to keep quiet? You are just a fake. If you believe this is the only God and those people are saying, no, that is also God, should you teach them a lesson or not? If you don't teach them a lesson, you are a fake. If you teach them a lesson, there will be a war. Yes or no? Yes. Now you can create your own God, what is the problem? You like the book that you are reading. Have you seen? Mahabharat, Mahabharat. You're going to an examination, you keep the pen and Today he is your god. <laughs> you want to sing a song, you better worship your microphone. The reason that we need to preserve this culture, it is one of the most valuable things on the planet right now because this is the only culture which is not God-oriented. This is the only culture which is liberation-oriented. Anything that came from this land is not God-oriented, not heaven-oriented, it is towards your mukti. Liberation is the highest goal, God is not the highest goal. 
God is just a stepping stone. If you want, you can step on him. If you can skip, you can skip him and go. It's up to you. How you are made, accordingly you do it. If you're capable of skipping and reaching your liberation, do it. If you want to do a hop skip, you are a… that kind of athlete, a long jumper or a… what's that? Decathlon <laughs> So you can jump over and get there, fine. If you cannot, you want to go step by step, you climb. And we can create any kind of god you need. When you are a little child, we can create a god that you need as a child. When you become adolescent, we can create another god. You become middle-aged, we have another god. For old age, we have another god. For every emotion that you have, every thought that you have, we have a god or a goddess for you. If you want to make use of this phenomenal array of gods and goddesses, is it all made up? It's not just made up. We know the technology of God-making. It will function as divinity in your life. It is not just belief system. It is not belief system. It will function as living div divinity in your life. Because here we are not looking at worshipping God. We are always looking at how to become one. This culture is not about looking up to God. This culture is seeing how you want to become and live as a divinity. People raise to a level where they refer to as Bhagwan. That is the idea, not always looking up to Bhagwan. You look up because you want to go up. You want to raise this piece of life to that dimension of existence where there is no distinction between who you are and what you refer to as divinity. So, the very nature of the culture is a scientific process. Unfortunately, we have not taken care of this science for the last six hundred, seven hundred years properly. It has become… it is not time-relevant, the way it is expressed. The science is still time-relevant, time but the, the expression is not time-relevant because there has been a gap of a few generations. They did not… if it was every generation, if it was being transmitted live, it would have been time-relevant. But because of oppression, because of conquerors who came in and it went underground, lot of things which went underground never came up. Many, many people who went underground never came out again. They got buried right there. The reason why you see so much of a certain form of yogic practice in the name of Tibetan Buddhism today is because when invasions happened, the invasions… the invaders mainly took the plains. The first thing that they did was burn the spiritual places. So they all went into the mountains. When they found the mountains too harsh for them to live, they crossed over and settled on the plateau, which you call as Tibet today. You just look at Tibetan Buddhism, where is Buddha in it? You have to search for Buddha. You will find all kinds of gods and goddesses with mispronounced names which are from here, full of ritual which came from this land, full of practices which came from this land, because this was established by people who left the plains and went into the mountains just to avoid the conquerors scorching them out.
So it is very, very, very significant that we preserve this as a live thing. When I say preserve, it need not be protected, it needs to be lived. If you protect it, it will become archival. You have to live it. That's what we are trying to display to you in the form of decor, in the form of food, in the way we do things here. We are trying to make the science of living as spiritual beings. Spirituality is not a teaching, it's the way you exist. For you to exist that way, you need to create the necessary ambience. Simple thing. I've been telling people right now, thousands of meditators have taken it up in Tamil Nadu. I want all of you to take this up. When you pick up the phone, what do you say? Hello? <laughs> if you're speaking in English language, you say hello. If you're speaking in some other language, why don't you say namaste, namaskaram, something? What's your problem? Because when you say namaskar, it's a very profound statement. Hello doesn't have that, but you say it because somebody has taught you. I mean, we brought this, see, see, till the English got established, they came in almost three hundred years ago, but they got established only in the last hundred and fifty, leaving the sixty-five years, hundred and fifty years before independence. About hundred years ago, when were your holidays in a month, do you know? In this country, the holidays were always three days, one day before Pavnami, one day after Pavnami and Pavnami. Amavasya days, Shivaratri days, Ekadashi days, these were the holidays because it was spiritually relevant for us to do sadhana on those days. Now what are you doing on a Sunday? You don't know what the hell to do on a Sunday, so you're watching the television and eating potato chips throughout the day. I'm saying the whole culture was designed to assist your spiritual sadhana, but we don't have the courage to go back to that in the world outside, at least in your homes, you do that. At least in your homes, you do that. If you're running a business, you can do it. Every… every employee of yours will be very happy that they have a holiday when others don't have it. Yes, and instead of getting four days in a month, they get three days in a stretch, on the Pavnami day, they will be happy, I'm telling you. If it's your own little business, you can do it, isn't it? Yes or no? If you have business which has to sync with the outside world, every day there's transaction, you can't do it. But in your home you can do it, isn't it? To whatever extent you can. At least you can say namaste to people. You know what this means? If you go into the temple, this is what you do. If God appears in front of you live, what will you do? <laughs> this is what you will do. If this man or woman comes in front of you, what do you do? This is what you will do. If you see a beautiful mountain, what do you do? This is what you do. If you see a tree, what do you do? This is what you do. If you see a cow, what do you do? This is what you do. Not just that, even if you see inanimate objects, this is what you do. If Shiva appears also, this is what we do. If a laborer here, whose name may be Shiva or whatever else, to him also this is what we do. If a very knowledgeable person comes, this is what we do. If an idiot comes, this is what we do. What this means is, it doesn't matter who he is. 
It doesn't matter what it is, whether you're a man, woman or a rock, it doesn't matter to me. As far as I'm concerned, every moment of my life, I want to recognize that in every piece of creation, the hand of creator is active. To that hand, I bow down, bow down, bow down. Now you are setting up an ambience for your evolution. You are setting up an ambience for your evolution. Without the necessary ambience, you sit down in the morning and shake like this. You will not move very quickly, it'll take a long time. You need to set up the ambience. Even if I… if you… if I give you a super seed which can produce a tremendous kind of crop for you, if you keep it on the rock, it's not going to grow, isn't it? You have to prepare the soil. The necessary ambience for growth has to be there, otherwise it's not going to happen. So creating that necessary ambience for spiritual growth of a human being is what you see as culture here. It is distorted in many ways, but still the fundamental thread is not gone. If we lose the thread, there will be nothing of worth in this country. There will be nothing of worth in this country if you lose that one spiritual thread, because that is the greatest thing we can offer to the world. The other parts of the world have done other kinds of achievements. In physical sciences, in technology, they've reached to many places. This can be the greatest fabulous exchange of people and knowledge base. We have the knowledge of the in internal, they have done well with the external. Isn't this a perfect formula for everybody to live well in the world? Isn't it a perfect formula that two sets of people have two different dimensions of knowledge, if both of us see that we have need for each other? Isn't this a perfect situation to live well? But people may choose to fight instead of living well. That is because if we do not create the necessary ambience for spiritual growth in the world, you teach as many damn practices as you want, you build as many damn temples as you want, people will not go very far. You have to create ambience of life where every moment there is a reminder, there is a reminder, there is a reminder. You must do this. In the mega classes, we're just trying to bring it now to the people. You must do this. Now you've been in Mahabharata, you understand, I believe you understand the significance of grace or being in grace. It makes all the difference. If you want to be the necessary… if you want to have the necessary receptivity for grace, one simple thing that you do is, when you get up in the morning, the first thing that you do is, you do what Krishna did, it worked for him, what did you do? <laughs> Sadhguru, nobody, you know in my house, you know, they are like… Especially if your house is full of idiots, it's all the more reason that you smile. That if your house is full of problems, at least you be a solution, isn't it? Yes or no? If your house is full of problematic people, isn't it very important that you function as a solution? No, you also want to be a bigger problem. So, it's okay. I'm not saying smile at somebody, smile at the ceiling. At least it didn't fall on you in the night. <laughs> Don't think it's a joke, it can fall on you. Small changes in the way the earth functions, 
the house that is protecting you could become your grave. Isn't it happening to thousands of people somewhere else? Isn't it happening? The very house that you live in can turn into your grave if Mother Earth just does… She's going carefully. If she just does a little twist, your house will become your grave. Yes or no? So tomorrow morning, your house is still a home. Isn't it enough occasion to smile at least, if not jump up and dance? Isn't it enough occasion at least to smile? Let me see some. <laughs> smile. And suppose there is somebody around you, <laughs> nobody around you, <laughs> no problem. Absolutely no problem. If somebody around you, there's something to manage. Nobody around you, nothing to manage. <laughs> the liberty of it, the freedom of it, nothing to manage. Wake up in the morning, ah! <laughs> Nobody is there to think you've gone crazy <laughs> I'm saying set the ambience for your growth. If you do not set the ambience of joy and reverence within you, Reverence does not mean towards something, towards somebody, it's a way to be. It's a certain way to be. Reverence means you are in a receptive mode because you understand life happens best with grace. You are constantly in a receptive mode. You don't want to give somebody a piece of your mind, you want to take in the intelligence of creation into you. You're planning many times, today I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Don't give the piece of your mind, if you keep giving away, what will you be left with? <laughs> You'll be left with nothing <laughs> 18th February 2012, 10 o'clock, for the first time it's happening, 84th Yuga. Wow! We are the first people to witness it. something wrong with eleven o'clock? So why don't we do it at eleven o'clock too? Do this, I'm telling you, every hour. Every moment you should do it, but to start with at least every hour in your waking moments <laughs> ten o'clock <laughs> You're still living. From nine o'clock to ten o'clock, do you know how many people, thousands died in this world? You and me are still living, isn't it fabulous? And the most amazing thing is human beings exist here as if they're going to live forever. No, between ten o'clock to eleven o'clock, many more thousands of people are going to die. If we are still living till eleven, wow! Isn't it fantastic? Please appreciate this, that is this culture. This culture constantly creating an ambience for your growth. This is not a belief system. We don't have a God, we can make whatever kind of God we want. We have understood the technology of God-making. We not only just create a form and believe in it, we energize it. We are not looking up, we are looking inward. This culture has to spread across the world, 
Otherwise, the modern technology which has made a man into a superman is going to destroy the world. If idiots become super, they become super idiots, you must understand this. If arrogant people become super, they become super arrogant. If hateful become be people become super, they become super hateful, isn't it? The modern technology is empowering people indiscriminately. It is time, it is time we've moved into the right yuga. We are into the right yuga right now that this is an ascending time for human consciousness. But, oh, human consciousness is going to go up. Nothing goes up or down unless you work for it. If you're willing to work for the world's consciousness to go up, there are many things I can give you. I have lots of employment. Only thing is I don't pay you, that's all. I have a lot of positions vacant, anybody wants to take… You want to be the CEO of spreading consciousness in the world, I'll make you that. Only thing is, I'll see that you're fed, I see that you're treated well wherever you go, I see that you're welcomed and embraced by people. But uh, we don't put you through the indignity of standing in front of me to collect money. I don't want you to put you to shame that you are such a beggar, you did what you care for just for the sake of money. That does not mean you will not eat well, that does not mean you will not live well, you will. In the embrace and love of millions of people, it's better to live that way than live on the security of every thirty days you get a packet or at least be focused on one person's consciousness rising. If you can't take the world, if you can't even take the segment of the world, at least take up yourself, that much you owe to yourself, isn't it? You should not deny yourself that. So these eight days has essentially been an exploration to make you see the significance of grace in one's life. If grace is not available to you or you are not available to grace, it does not matter how much money you have, how much wealth you have, whatever nonsense you have, you will not live a beautiful life. This is not my curse. I will never curse you and I have taken away the power to curse from you. <laughs> but this is the way life works, this is the dharma, this is the law of life. If you go by it, life will be a beautiful flowering. If you don't go by it, you will unnecessarily struggle with forces which are way beyond because they are the forces of creation. You cannot fight them, you can only ride them. It's like surfing, you ride the wave. If you try to fight it, it'll smother you. This is simple sense. This is not some kind of philosophy. This is simple sense. If you want to go on the ocean, you ride the wave, you don't fight the wave. And what we are talking about is not an ocean, we are talking about creation, we are talking about cosmos, we are talking about cosmic forces where an ocean is like a drop of water. An ocean is just a drop of water in the cosmic space. In this, you learn to ride the wave. Dharma is just that. How to ride the wave, how not to be smothered by the wave.